Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host and producer of the show. And this month, the month of September 2020, people from all over the U.S. and actually all around the world are celebrating the arrival of Paramahansa Yogananda to the United States 100 years ago, bringing the teachings of Kriya Yoga to the West and changing millions of lives throughout the world. I am so delighted to be joined today by Phil Goldberg. Phil's book, American Veda, documents how Indian spirituality changed the West. And then his more recent book, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru, is a biography of Yogananda that sheds new light on the life of this great spiritual teacher. Phil Goldberg has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 50 years. He is an illuminating and entertaining public speaker and workshop leader, meditation teacher, and an ordained interfaith minister. Phil's most recent book is Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, which obviously (laughs) fits right into today's (laughs) world, (laughs) and it's now available. He contributes regularly to Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health Magazine online, and he leads American Veda Tours of India. You can find out more about Phil Goldberg and his programs at his website, philipgoldberg.com, and that's Philip with one L, goldberg.com. Welcome, Phil Goldberg. I'm so glad you could join us again on the Yoga Hour today. I'm delighted to be with you, Laurel. (laughs) So before we dive into our conversation about the life of Yogananda, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. Let's start by bringing ourselves fully present right here and right now. So let's begin just by bringing our attention to our bodies in space. Just feel your body and feel whatever surfaces are supporting you at the moment. Feel your feet. Perhaps they're on the ground. Feel if you're in a chair, feel the parts of your body that are supported by the chair. And then just turn your attention to the breath. It's an amazing tool. It's always with us. And just notice as you take a fully conscious breath, as you inhale and exhale. 
on the inhale, feeling the parts of your body that are moving. And on the exhale, feeling them return to their original place. Continuing to take these conscious breaths, feeling the air in the nostrils, feeling how cool it is on the inhale, and how it's warmed on the exhale. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate, taken from Roy Eugene Davis's book, Paramahansa Yogananda as I Knew Him. Mr. Davis talked about the last time he personally met with his guru, Yogananda. This is what Yogananda told him. Don't allow yourself to be too concerned about what others do or don't do. Don't look back. Don't look to the left or to the right. Look straight ahead to the goal and go all the way in this lifetime. And once again, don't look back. Don't look to the left or to the right. Look straight ahead to the goal and go all the way in this lifetime. You can do it. So once again, Phil Goldberg, welcome back to the yoga hour great to be here to commemorate this important centennial right for our three september yoga hour shows we're going to be celebrating this 100th anniversary of yogananda's arrival in america which was on september 19th 1920 and again i couldn't imagine a more perfect person to have as a guest to talk about this momentous arrival, because again, these two wonderful books, American Veda, and then the biography of Yogananda. So what was it about Paramahansa Yogananda that inspired you to write the book, The Life of Yogananda? Well, it goes back to, well, for me, it goes back to when I first read Autobiography of a Yogi, 1970. Um, But when I wrote American Veda, I I wrote about all the uh, spiritual teachers who came here from India, the important ones, and only a few uh, warranted a full chapter to themselves, and Yogananda was one of them. And I I came to appreciate just uh, how important a figure he was historically in this um, uh, vital transmission of India's spiritual teachings to the West, um, and so his uh, the his the historical importance stood out. But while I was writing about him, I found his personal story, the human story of uh, Yogananda as a as a writer. The narrative uh, was compelling, mm-hmm. and uh, we know more about his personal life than we do most uh, renunciates because he he spoke about it more and and wrote about it in his autobiography. Then, after the book was out for a while, and I was thinking, is there anything in it that I can now, you know, 
dig into more deeply, I thought of biographies, and um, his he was the only one that um, had a strong enough appeal because of that personal story. And so um, I remember being frustrated that I, I, I had to I had only a, a chapter to in American Veda to devote mm-hmm. to him to his life. So um, I reread Autobiography of a Yogi and realized um, he left out a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, especially. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I did a page count and I, I realized that um, as compelling and fascinating as, as the autobiography is, only less than 10% of it is about his life after he came to America. Right. And, and that was ver- almost his entire adult life. It was, you know, 32 of his uh, 59 years. And right. so um, I, I said, my God, there's, there's a lot left out. And that is a story that deserves to be researched and told. And so that, that's how it came to be. And I, I would highly recommend both of the books we're talking about, American Veda, if um, listeners are interested in really digging into more how the teachings of Yoga Vedanta came to the West. It's a wonderful book. I've been rereading it a bit in preparation for today. And then also, of course, the biography that you did of Yogananda. So highly recommended both of them. And of course, highly recommended that if you haven't read yet, or perhaps if it's been a while since you've read it, that you return to the autobiography of a yogi. So let's set the stage a little bit though, Phil. So here Mm -hmm. is this, you know, yogi, long hair in uh, robes, who steps off the boat um, (laughs) in uh, September of 1920. But that was not by any means the first introduction of these teachings. The, the, in a way, the stage was set by other people who had come before. So obviously we could spend the whole hour just talking about that. But just let's give us a little bit of a highlight. How did these Vedic teachings kind of first come to the United States and make it such a fertile place for Yogananda when he got here? Well, let's first even pinpoint it a little more. The actual date the boat arrived from Calcutta in Boston, which is mm-hmm. where he spent the first few years of his time in America, was September 19th. Right. Um, and um, But you're right that there were antecedents to his coming here, and, and which was of uh, great help to him because there were people who had already learned a good bit about India's spiritual teachings. Uh, there were, maybe they had read a lot. Uh, and uh, so they, there was a, uh, a segment of the population uh, in Boston, in and around his first stop here, that um, was eager to know more and to meet a genuine yogi from 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 the east right. the um it, it goes back to the late 18th and early 19th centuries when um trading ships between uh, boston and and india would uh, you know go back and forth and at a certain point um english language 
translations of the Bhagavad Gita and other of the sacred texts of India and writings of mostly British uh, scholars who were in India. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were some that didn't uh, degrade and look down on, on the uh, colonized country and, and recognize that in, in their sacred traditions, there was something of great value and tremendous complexity and profundity. So they wrote about it. And a lot of this literature reached uh, into the hands of you know, scholars and intellectuals in, in Boston at the time, which was being called the Athens of America, you know, and mm. Har Harvard was, you know, already established. And, and then eventually it got into the hands of Ralph Waldo Emerson and right. Henry, Henry David Thoreau and later Walt Whitman. And, and so that, that those New England transcendentalists um, absorbed and embraced these uh, teachings, put it into their own language, uh, added, uh, you know, the segments of their own areas of expertise and their own voices, and um, the word spread through Emerson and Thoreau mainly. And um, then in the late 19th century, the New Thought Movement uh, which is still an important segment of the sort of American spiritual landscape, but the early founders, Madame Blavatsky in Theosophy, Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science, right. uh, the, the Fillmore's starting Unity Church, and others, mostly around New England, they too, you know, sort of put together a mix of Western metaphysics and Indian philosophy, yogic philosophy, and started their churches and uh, metaphysical centers and, and that sort of thing. And then people like William James picked up on it at, at Harvard. But the big, and then there was the big moment in 1893. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> when Yogananda's uh, illustrious predecessor, right, um, uh, Swami Vivekananda, uh, I always call Vivekananda the Jackie Robinson of American <laughs> Veda because he was he was the first, you know, dark skinned uh, stranger to to arrive on the scene and just change everything. Mm -hmm. And he spoke in Chicago at the World Parliament of Religions became a sensation and stayed a few years, established the Vedanta societies, left behind books and, uh, and buildings, you know. Uh, and so th the swamis from his lineage would come here and run and operate uh, centers in local areas. And some of those already existed when Yogananda came. And right. so, and, and, and Vivekananda spoke at, in Boston and Cambridge at Harvard. And so there were people who came to see Yogananda who may have also seen uh, Vivekananda. And wow. some, of, some of Yogananda's first uh, people who he attracted were followers of the various New Thought uh, teachings. So he, there was precedent. And um, I mean, we can go into a whole thing, you know, a lot more detail, but even in, 
before Yogananda left India, Vivekananda would have been an inspiration because he was a national hero in India for the his triumph in America mm. and the impact he had on America. And uh, when Yogananda was a teenager living in Calcutta, his family home, you could walk to Vivekananda's family home where he grew up, which is now a, a national museum. Um, and so that whole area where uh, Yogananda spent his uh, impressionable teenage years, uh, was there was a lot of Vivekananda's legacy there and the legacy of Vivekananda's uh, teacher, the, the legendary uh, Sri Ramakrishna. Right. So, so the inspiration of being in the West and all that was, was begun in India. And then there was a, you know, a small segment of the American population who was primed for another emissary from India at the time Yogananda arrived in 1920. Right. You know, I just wanted wanted to mention, um, I have heard that or read that uh, this um, first presentation from Vivekananda at the, the, um, the, Parliament of the World's Religions was so striking where he just came out onto the stage and the audience immediately gave him a standing ovation. Well, actually, the, the, the standing ovation is said to have occurred when he opened his speech Oh. By uh, with sisters and brothers of America, right? Uh, something, right. and I, I may have gotten that a little wrong, but uh, apparently there was something about that opening, that mm-hmm. sort of gracious uh, opening that um, uh, people responded to, and then they responded to his whole speech. If you go back to that speech, um, it's it's fascinating because you know one of the things he does in that speech is to cry religious fanaticism and hope Mm. that the the gathering, this interfaith gathering would be the death knell of fanaticism and, you know, didn't work out that way. Oh, man. Yeah, it's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there were actually many foretellings in Yogananda's early life that he was destined to go to the West. So, yes. Um, uh, the one that I'm thinking of, um, actually, I think his mother brought him to her guru, um, who was in the same lineage to um, Lahiri Mahasaya for a blessing. And I think even when he was a baby, didn't Lahiri Mahasaya say, you know, you're, you know, that he had a great destiny in front of him? Yes, and then the, co- the college thing, you know, where. Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda's guru, really wanted him to go to college. And the reason he gave was that it was going to be important for him to have had a college education when he went to the West, right? Yes. Um, you know, the, the Kriya Yoga lineage that is honored at all the um, centers that teach in Yogananda's name mm-hmm. um, uh, goes back to the legendary... Uh, Babaji, right? Um, Avatar Babaji, yes, uh, the ageless, said to be ageless, uh, yogi in the Himalayas, whom uh, uh, who appeared to uh, Lahiri Mahasya when Lahiri was a young man, 
uh, and gave, essentially anointed him for the mission of reviving the Kriya Yoga lineage. Right. And it is said that uh, Babaji appeared to Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda's guru, and uh, one of the things he said to him was that he would bring to him uh, an ideal disciple who could take the teachings of Kriya Yoga to the West. And um, so I, Sri Yukteswar was, uh, I guess he recognized in young Mukunda, before he was even named Yogananda, um, that this was the guy. And, <laughs> and so, the yeah, and so part of his, you know, training right. was uh, different from what other disciples might have uh, been given because he, he knew he was grooming somebody to go to the West. And uh, that, that was, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that to the extent those stories are true, um, they were obviously prophetic. Exactly. And then, as you mentioned, you know, all of the stuff, you know, the transcendentalists, all of this, these seeds were really planted in the Boston area. And so it's so interesting that that was where he went first, that that was, you know, the reason for the trip was that yeah. he was invited to speak at a, an organization at a conference that was put together by the Unitarians, right? Yes. The Congress of Religious Liberals. And that was scheduled for early October. I know. Right? I, I have to look into why it was called that. It's, it has such a different name, uh, meaning, religious liberals maybe to us now, 100 years later. But that's what it was. And apparently it was a, an annual thing that had been suspended for World War One, oh. And then so this was the you know, post-war first one. And if you, we don't have time for it, but if you go, if you look at, in my book, um, in the biography of Yogananda, um, the story of how he came to be the person representing India and Hinduism at this conference at age 27 uh, is fascinating. And it's just like the, like the, miraculous stories in the autobiography of a yogi this is right up there with like uh, is this all coincidence is it all is it all karma is it divine intervention how everything fell into place first you know because it started with a vision he always knew he was destined to go to the to america and he had a vision uh during meditation at the school that he ran uh right. and, and founded in at, the at city. Ranchi, yeah at the city of Ranchi, and he said, okay, it's time. It's time for me to go to America, and he got on a train to Calcutta, and one thing led to another, and, you know, he ended up uh, getting passage on a, on the first uh, passenger ship to go from India to America since before the war. It was already booked. He was told there were no tickets, but, he, you know, he ended up getting on board. He ended up getting the money. To, to for passage, he ended up getting a reason to go to Boston with the uh, when the person who was scheduled to go and speak decided not to, and Yogananda was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so it, I mean, everything fell into place, 
Right. And he went to speak, and the title of his speech is uh, very interesting and, and uh, gives you a sense of uh, what his mission was. It was called The Science of Religion. And uh, subsequently, there was a book uh, based on the speech um, that was published that I highly recommend to people to, you know, sort of captures the essence of the message he felt he should deliver uh, when he first arrived. Um, and it was a different way of understanding and looking at religion, a sort of uh, English language uh, version of a sort of the essence of yoga philosophy and um, or what people would call Hinduism. And um, that, you know, that was the ostensible reason for him coming here to speak at a conference, just like it had been Vivekananda's ostensible reason to speak at the World Parliament of Religion, but it ended up being a much greater mission, as right. was for yoga for both of them. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about further about his preparation, because what I thought was so interesting is he really wasn't fluent in English <laughs> or, yeah. or he hadn't studied it that much. And yet at, on the boat, I remember yeah. reading in the autobiography on the boat, he even gives this, you know, this uh, lecture in English and then, it, it does the same just a few weeks later once he gets to Boston. So what, what else was there about his preparation? Well, it's interesting because he would have known English. He would have, um, you know, he went to schools run by the British, founded and run by the British. His father was an executive at the rail in the railway system, which was run by the British. Uh, Calcutta, you know, was the the uh, the center of the uh, British colonial administration at that time, and um, so English would have been part of his uh, life. Of course, he you know he would have spoke Bengal and um, also Hindi. The family moved around a bit, but he, he would have been familiar with English. Well, but let's not let's drop that there yeah, just for because okay. amazingly, we've already come to the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with guest Phil Goldberg, the author of a Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, American Veda and the Life of Yogananda, among other books. You can find out more about Phil at his website, philipgoldberg.com. Again, Philip with one L. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll pick up right where we left off. Stay with us. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm here today with Phil Goldberg. 
and I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and we're really talking about Yogananda's momentous arrival in the United States, which was a uh, hundred years ago this month. So, Phil, on the break, you and I were talking about whether about his background in terms of speaking English, and um, I'm going to read that little that little review of the um, of his speech that was in the. Uh, conference's official account. It's it's short um, because I, I was so interested in reading this. It says, in fluent English and with a forceful deliver- delivery, he gave an address of a philosophical character. Religion, he maintained, is universal and it is one. We cannot possibly universalize particular customs and conventions, but the common element in religion can be universalized, and we can ask all alike to follow and obey it. So that was given, that speech, that quote from that speech was given, again, just a couple of weeks after he arrived, and you were talking about his background in in speaking English in India. I'm guessing that his... Uh, fluency in English was much better than he realized because he, he he wrote about and and even spoke about when he was here um, how insecure he felt about whether he'd be able to you know speak to Americans uh, adequately. Uh, Sri Yukteswar you know, assured him he'd be fine, uh, but he was insecure. And when he was um, invited aboard the ship to give a, a, a lecture to the uh, passengers as this, you know, Swami. Um, he uh, was reluctant, but he did it. And uh, I actually, I, I describe it in the book that they chose a topic for him called the battle of life and how to fight it. Mm. And um, can I, I'll just read from my own, sure. from, from the biography. When the, uh, captain introduced him to the audience, he was struck mute. He said that his mind went blank and he remained silent for a full 10 minutes. Some in the audience chuckled. Then the voice of his guru came to him. You can speak. He did, of course, and he described the lecture the way musicians describe their best performances as flowing from some unknown source beyond their own volition. Mm. So the speech on the ship went over well, uh, and uh, so did his maiden speech in America at that conference or the Congress of Religious Liberals. And, you know, it was part of his adaptation to America to not only master the, the language better, but to also become more and more familiar with American customs and American values and adapt um, the the teachings that he brought with him from India so that uh, they would make sense to Americans and appeal to American values and needs and the, you know, so on and so forth. And you could see that evolution as he, you know, spoke more and more often Mm-hmm. After the, after that um, initial uh, lecture, so you you talk about in um, in American Veda, you talk about how you know he spent the four years in Boston, and then of course in the twenties, the Roaring Twenties, he was going across the country, you know, and and giving lectures to very large groups of people. So this started happening not that long after he got here, 
He was attracting no, large, large audiences. It every guru came here. You know, they start with a small audience usually, and then it builds. You know, after the uh, talk at the Congress, um, a little while later, he was invited to give a talk at a at a church in Somerville, mm -hmm. outside of Cambridge. And so it would have been a, just a Sunday congregation. Then mm -hmm. somebody said, come to speak to my, you know, gathering of uh, ladies who are interested in metaphysics. And, and so he'd be talking in, people, in living rooms to, you know, small numbers of people. And it grew from there. And, right. you know, by the time, uh, you know, he set out for the west you know four or five years later he was filling uh large he filled symphony hall in boston and so you know it was it grew and reputation grew and the outreach grew the americans who came who uh gathered around him who became his first students disciples friends uh supporters uh advocates you know, some of them were savvy people and they uh, some of them are people of means. And so they put up money to advertise his talks, to rent a place and all the things, the the sort of infrastructure you need to uh, make yourself, your presence felt. And uh, that's how it grew. Uh, not a, a not a atypical story, but one that, you know, um, <laughs> grew to a much larger scale than the, most of the gurus who came here. But he didn't head west, on, you know, for um, more than four years after right. he arrived. Yeah. So what was it, do you think, that made Americans really open to his teachings? What was it that, you know, grabbed their interest and made them want to go? I think this was his talks were advertised as, um, oh, I forget, you know, it's uh, Indian sage, educator, <laughs> author, poet kind of thing. Yeah. So, like, why Philosopher, would you? psychologist. <laughs> right. right. But, uh, well, uh, here's the thing. Um, one of the things I realized researching the whole history of this, not just Yogananda's life, but, you know, the whole story of how India's teachings caught on here in America. Um, there's always been two types of Americans, and, and we see it right now in the, in the political turmoil we're in. There's the Americans who uh, resist anything foreign, anything strange, feel threatened by it, uh, get are become hostile toward it, uh, especially you know dark-skinned people representing what they think of as heathen religions and that sort of thing. And and Yogananda, like Vivekananda before him, and men, the gurus who came after him, they all faced racism, they all faced prejudice, they all faced religious bigotry. Uh, you know, and go home, go back where you came from, stay away from our women. You know, all this sort of stuff. But they also the other American is one who welcomes newcomers and finds them fascinating and is inclusive and says, what, may, what do they have to offer? 
this this may be interesting or you know i read about indian philosophy oh this must let's hear what he has to say oh that sounds intriguing i'll think i'll try that i'll read that book i'll hear and and so this this two the open-minded american the seeker the 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 pragmatist who if if something is promises self-improvement or better health or uh, you know anything they're looking for to improve their lives, uh, they'll try it. And so practices like meditation and hatha yoga, uh, they were offered as pragmatic uh, methods to improve life. And and for the the spiritual seekers, they offered a different way of looking at religion and understanding the spiritual impulse and understanding the nature of the the inner self and the 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 inner realm of life and its connection to the divine. And so there were there were always those Americans who for whom these things. I mean, I was one of them in the sixties. Right. You know, yeah. So Me too. Um, yeah, and so there were those same kind of people in the 20s and in the 1890s there were just yeah. fewer of them right. um and and they were drawn to this this is something and it works that's the thing people have to realize right. about these teachings yogananda did not say oh i'm here to teach you hinduism and you should all convert to my religion no he was saying here's a, a scientific pragmatic rational way of looking at the spiritual life and um, our sages, the sages of India, the rishis, the great yogis, they formulated these teachings in a very practical way. You don't have to uh, take it on faith. You don't have to convert. You don't have to believe what I'm telling you. Just try it out. And if it works yes. for you, then you, you could still, still be a Christian. You could still be a Jew. You could still be an atheist. You know, right. and and so that's it was in that spirit that appealed to the American open mindedness. But the main thing was they would do these practices and they would work. And exactly. So, exactly. That, yeah, right? I think that's, that's so that's so important how people, you know, become exposed to these teachings and then they can see the benefits for themselves. And so it can build on itself in that way. And I think that's part, it was part of his appeal. I was going to ask you about another part though, because he was very good at really opening his arms to Christianity. Oh yeah. And that was also, I think, part of his appeal. It wasn't just what you just said, which is, you know, you can still be a Christian, you can still be a Jew, whatever, but he really you know, embraced the teachings yes. of, of Jesus in a way that I think really resonated with people in the 1920s and onward. I'm going to just modify what you said. Okay. He, he didn't open his arms and embrace Christianity so much as uh, Christ. As Christ. Yes, you're right. Yes. He um, all, you know, Jesus is revered in, in the Hindu world and in the mm-hmm. Buddhist world as a great you know, master, a yogi. Some people think of him as a divine incarnation, only not the only one. He's right up there with Krishna and Rama and Buddha as, you know, emissaries of God. And, uh, or some people just see him as a, you know, ex- exceptionally great yogi or great 
uh, spiritual master. So he's revered and honored throughout India, but in a different way. He's honored as one of many of the great spiritual luminaries. And all the gurus who came to the West recognized that. Yogananda took it to another level. And uh, he, because he felt it was part of his mission that came from, you know, Babaji's time to um, not only bring to the West what he called, you know, the, the true yoga, the uh, true teachings of yoga, but also the true teachings of Christ, what he would call, you know, original Christianity. And, um, and so Jesus was not just an inspiration and not just, an, you know, a, a, somebody they recognized and honored in the Christian world, but uh, was presented as part of his own lineage. And so um, it, people who go to uh, places associated with, Vivek, with Yogananda's uh, legacy are surprised when they look at the altars and they see portraits of his guru, this guru lineage, and a picture of Krishna, right. and and a picture of Jesus. Of, of Jesus, uh, yeah. and and of you know the different lineages do different arrangements, but um, so he felt you know that this sort of spirit of of Christ consciousness and what Jesus really taught was uh, not just compatible with the teachings of the Vedas, but are essentially two different expressions of them. You know, one born in the sands of the Middle East, one born in the Himalayas and the jungles of India, but mm -hmm. that they, they were essentially, you know, saying the same thing. And and so he spoke about Jesus a lot. And, and there's a lot of people who are skeptical or cynical about that and say, oh, you know, he did that just so, you know, Christians in America wouldn't feel threatened. And, it, you know, some people have said, oh, he sold out to the Christians. Uh, but, I, you know, if you look at it, you know, no, he was very sincere about this. You know, um, he spoke about it so much. I mean, there's thousands of pages of Yogananda speaking about Jesus and Christ consciousness. And right. so um, it was very real. And, and, um, and yes, it was also uh, uh, effective in making him more acceptable to uh, the Christians of America in 1920s and 30s and so forth. But I don't think he did it just to, you know, right appease them in some way. I, right. you know. So the other thing I was going to point to is his use of the ultra-modern technology, starting yes. in the 30s, I guess it was, of mail order. Yes. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about yeah, that I, and how that helped him get his message out a, in a, to a much wider geographic area than just the L.A. area or the areas that he visited personally in the, in the 30s and onward? Yes, this is part of earlier I said, you know, uh, the successful teachers who came here from India had to, uh, they were very skilled at adapting. Uh, but it wasn't just the language and the, the way of uh, presenting the teachings. It was the methods of delivery they had to adapt to also. I mean, I remember in the late 60s, 
when I started uh, transcendental meditation and I was with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi a lot, he was like an early adopter of video technology. They they made they were recording everything he ever did on video on these big clunky machines. And, you know, they and Yogananda did the same thing. He, he was on the radio, uh, you know, and uh, the mail order. <laughs> it sounds quaint in the it age does. of, you know, when you when you have whole libraries on your phone. Right. But in those days, mail order was a new technology. You know, the Sears Roebuck catalog was a very big deal. And it was like, oh, my gosh, you can cut a coupon from a magazine or newspaper and mail it with a check and all comes back to you a week or two later uh, you know a toaster or a a new hat or something you know left on your doorstep and this was new technology and so yogananda when he realized you know he was getting too popular he was moving around the country lecturing and giving courses, instructing people in, you know, Kriya Yoga methods. You can't, you can't do that in the traditional guru way, right. uh, person to person, and, and reach large numbers of people. And, you know, America's a vast place. He was moving around on trains from place to place a lot. And so he realized some of these teachings could be put into writing without losing, uh, without diluting the, the, you know, their value, their effectiveness. They, some didn't have to be given a one-on-one. -on -one. Some still did, and they still are to this day. Right. But, but, you know, he was able to put some of them in writing and create this correspondence course. So somebody would send in a, you know, a coupon or whatever it was, and they would get weekly lessons. Mm -hmm. And um, that continues to this day in some yeah. of the, you know, uh, teaching lineages that he left behind. Uh, only now, you know, you could probably get them online. But um, exactly. it, uh, until very recently, you know, they were still coming, you know, by snail mail. And um, he um, and, and he was criticized for this. You know, by tr certain traditionalists who said, oh, no, no, these teachings should only be given from a guru to a, a disciple and, you know, it's going to get diluted and he's selling out to America and values and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, the smart, he was wise man and he knew right. what what right. could what needs to be taught in in the traditional way to certain people at certain times one-on-one -on -one, and what could be disseminated in a more sort of uh, mass media kind mm -hmm. of context. And that's how, it, that's how it evolved. Right. So, Phil, we spent this time so far talking about Yogananda. We could talk about it, I'm sure, for hours more, but in these last oh, three to five minutes. So as you look at him and knowing what you do about him, which is a lot, what, how would you describe his legacy for us today? Well, there's so, you know, God, there's so much to be said. Um, he was uh, a giant among giants because, uh, you know, I, I hold that this transmission of traditional Indian spiritual teachings to the West uh, 
will be considered one of the most important phenomena in in the history, especially of the 20th century and tw- mm-hmm. now the 21st. I mean, we're on Unity Online. The, <laughs> found, right. the founders of Unity owed a lot to Indian philosophy. You know, the founders of Unity were at that lectures that Vivekananda gave in 1893. So mm-hmm. even Unity is, is, you know, benefited from the teachings of India and still does. Um, and so I... In that context, Yogananda stands out uh, because to this day, all these years after his passing in 1952, yes, um, you know that's getting on to what 70 years now. Right. Um, uh, he's still he's still being discovered. He's still reaching people, largely through the autobiography of a yogi. It's hard to imagine what his legacy would be had he never written that book. He, right. he you know, there was still plenty of other literature that, you know, he left behind. He left behind organizations and people he trained. And so he would have no doubt still had a presence. But that book um, just was a door opener for millions of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it's a it's a very important legacy and a, and and a vivid one. But I and I want to say in in the last couple since we have limited time, one of the things that stands out for me and you you mentioned my current book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. He was an inspiration, you know, for me in that book as well because mm. he was a master of Indian spirituality and the spiritual life. And he was a renunciate. Mm -hmm. And he placed the spiritual life above everything in, you know, material life, life in the world. But he was not detached to the point of escapism. He wouldn't, he was, he was tuned into the world. He spoke out about against injustices and racism and colonialism. And he was, you know, a vocal supporter of Gandhi's independence movement. He addressed, he was in tune with my, he was informed citizen. Well, he wasn't an official citizen, but he was (laughs) until the end, but he, 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 he spoke out about, the, the conditions of modern life when he had to. And, and I found that inspirational. Mm-hmm. He was, he was uh, that expression of being in the world, but not of it. He exemplified yes. that, but he was not disengaged and detached. He, he was very well informed and, and spoke out when, when he needed to from his platform. And I find that in today's world inspiring. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I was struck by, you wrote about that, you wrote American Veda over 10 years ago, it was published in 2010. And you were talking about speaking with a bunch of of young people, younger seekers at that time in their 20s. I'm sorry for forgetting the details, but you were struck by how many people there had read had read the autobiography yeah. of a yogi. Yeah, I remember that passage because, you know, so uh, you, I, I interviewed so many baby boomers and all that, and everybody had read autobiography of a yogi. Then I was in a gathering of young seekers. They were in their 20s, 
And I said, what brought you to this guru they were going to see? And I said, oh, well, I read one of them said, I read autobiography of a yogi. And, and I said, where'd you find it? And it was in like a school library in the Midwest somewhere. And right. I thought, oh my, you know, that's really says something. <laughs> And with that, we're cut. We've come to the close. You're, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. And we've been discussing Paramahansa Yogananda with Philip Goldberg, in as part of a celebration of the arrival of Yogananda to the United States a hundred years ago this month. Phil is the author of many wonderful books and articles. The books include American Veda. How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, as well as a biography of Yogananda, The Life of Yogananda. Phil is also the co-host of the popular Spirit Matters podcast. You can find out more about Phil at his website, philipgoldberg.com. Phil will also be the guest speaker this coming Sunday, September 6th, at Center for Spiritual Enlightenment's weekly Sunday satsang, which is at 10 o'clock Pacific time on this Sunday, September 6th. We hope you can join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including daily morning meditation at 6.30 in the morning and weekday meditation online at 4 p.m. Learn more about the online programs at websites ellengraceobrien.com or csecenter.org. Thanks so much, Phil, for joining me today on the show. It was great to be with you, Laurel. <laughs> Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when Yogacharya O'Brien will be sharing more about the legacy of Paramahansa Yogananda with the Nayaswamis Jyotish and Devi, the spiritual directors of Ananda Spiritual Communities. Ananda was founded by Swami Kriyananda, a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, our producer, assistant producers Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado, CSE's global outreach manager Holly Gray, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.